please take a seat unless you need to stand. I read an article a few years ago that said sitting is the new smoking, so if you need to stand, I understand. <laughs> Great to be with you all this morning. Hope everyone's doing well as we continue on into the new year, 2023. Um, yeah, doing all right? Some people are, some people aren't. That's all right. That's how life is. Uh, today and next Sunday, we're going to be exploring the meaning of a very important word. That word is gospel. It's a word that's all over the New Testament. It's a word that you'll hear me use around the church often, and we use it in our speech to each other when we get together to pray or study the Bible. We talk about the gospel. But even so, we shouldn't take it for granted that everybody knows exactly what this word gospel means. You can recognize the term. It might be familiar to you. It might even be part of your vocabulary, but you're still not exactly sure what it means. You know, it's a bit like the word calculus. Uh, most of us know how to pronounce it. We've used it in speech, but I wager there's only a few people in the room, and I'm not one of them, who actually knows what calculus means. Uh, so too with the word gospel, except, and here's some good news, pun intended, uh, the meaning of gospel is not quite as complicated as the meaning of calculus. So can I get an amen? amen. Let me pray before I say anything else. Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you for your gospel, and we know that it's not just given to us to be admired and talked of and professed, but to be practiced. And that it's not merely to reside in our mind and memory and intellect, but to be seen in our lives. And so we ask Jesus Christ that you would make that happen. Amen. Let me start with a quick theology lesson. As Christians, here's what we believe about the history of the world. We believe that the eternal triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, infinitely happy and satisfied of himself, out of the overflow of that happiness, created a universe with a world in it. And then as the pinnacle and climax of that creative act, God formed out of dust and breath humankind, you and me, to rule over the world. What does that mean? To care for the world, to cultivate it, to steward it. In other words, in the beginning, our purpose, our collective vocation as human beings was to rejoice in God by filling the earth and then multiplying and spreading God's happy rule throughout the world. That was our original purpose. But then we decided in our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, here's what we believe as Christians, we decided to listen to a dissembling serpent instead of listening to the resplendent God of all truth and beauty and goodness. And as a consequence of that, we plunged our lives, our existence, individually and collectively into self-centeredness and idolatry, condemnation and misery, bringing ourselves under the acute displeasure of our good creator. The Bible speaks of this as a state of being under the wrath of God. That's the biblical language that's often used here. Yet, and here's something that's absolutely mind-blowing, God's response following a history of failure, after failure, after failure by humankind and by his chosen people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, God's response was to draw near, to come even closer, to become one of us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's called the incarnation, when God became man, took on flesh. And he did that. He became one of us so that he could do what we were supposed to do to do what Adam and Eve were meant to do in the beginning, to fulfill their original 
purpose, their original commission and vocation perfectly, and then by dying and rising again to usher all of us, humankind, into a better future, to bring us through Jesus Christ, who the New Testament calls the second Adam, to bring us through Christ into the glory that was planned in the beginning. Now, that all started about 2,000 years ago, and one day that glory is going to be here perfectly. So we are living in the beginning of the end right now. And in the end, Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's not going to be disguised. He's not going to appear lowly. He's going to come back with the armies of heaven. He's going to rip the skies open, and no one's going to mistake it. And all will be judged. This is what the book of Revelation teaches. And then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And creation is going to be stunningly recreated, and you're not going to want to miss it. You're not going to want to miss it. Now, this new earth, it's going to be kind of like the earth that we inhabit right now, kind of like this world, minus sin, minus apologies, minus wrinkles, minus tears and resentment, minus dashed hopes, and relational friction and sorrow, minus unexplainable, undiagnosable frustration, undiagnosable sadness and sorrow. Some of you know that. I've known that. Minus shame, minus boredom, minus mustered-up happiness that masked emptiness, minus disappointment, minus regret. And in this new world, we're going to find ourselves, this is going to be fantastic, in transformed yet fully touchable bodies. And we're going to be feeling wonderful physically, far better than any earthly drug could achieve, far better than you can achieve with Percocet or fentanyl or even extra-strength NyQuil, far, far better. And we will be unable to sin, and we will be at rest, enjoying this new earth as we were always meant to enjoy it, the food, the flowers, the sunsets out on the pier, which I hope will be rebuilt the friendships, the mountains. We will be enjoying God as we were meant to enjoy Him. That is what we believe as Christians. At the same time, as Christians, here's what we know from our experience about life in this fallen world, the world as it presently is. Here's what we know. We're paying our taxes. We're going to the dentist. We're sagging. We're losing our jobs, or we're scared about losing them. We're losing our relationships. We're losing our hair. We're losing our optimism. We're dragging ourselves out of bed for the fourth or fifth day, having not got enough sleep. We're raising our kids with disappointment, or we're disappointed that we don't have kids to raise. Or we're disappointed about the way we raised our kids, and we know we don't have a second chance. We're fighting to forget the horrific thing that was done to us when we were five or eight. We're saying life's dreams slip through our fingers. We're saying our bank accounts run dry. Or maybe we're saying the money pile up in our bank accounts and we're realizing just how empty and unsatisfying that can actually be. We're painting smiles on our faces when we don't feel it. We're just trying to survive. And at the throbbing core of all of this is our awareness every day of our own failure and sin. Let's take the mask off. We go through many days braced and tensed, maybe wondering what the next disappointment in life will be. Is it going to come through an email or a voicemail or an appointment in the boss's office? Or maybe it's just going to come around the dining room table with the people we live with and love most. And we know that as we look back over our lives, especially those of us who are over the hill, 
that many of the things that we longed for when we were 18 did not turn out the way that we dreamed at that time. And we know that no matter how many hours of nine or ten hours of sleep, how many days of nine or ten hours of sleep we get, something in us just won't sit still. It's frenetic. On the outside it looks calm, but on the inside there's a storm. And so in some we see these two things. We see on the one hand what Christians believe, and on the other hand what we know about our lives and the world as it presently is. For most of us, these are two parallel tracks. And on most days, they don't intersect. The glory that we know we're headed for and my frustrated little life with the pain and disappointment that feels so intense at times. Most of these time, most of the time, those are parallel, not intersecting tracks. In the Bible, it comes to us, it comes and it taps me on the shoulder and it says, these two tracks can be brought together. In fact, they already have been. Have you heard? And the word the Bible uses to describe this extravagant news is gospel. This means that the word gospel has everything to do with our existence here and now. It has everything to do with you and me when tomorrow morning we wake up and slap the alarm clock, drag ourselves to the shower, pop a few ibuprofen because I'm so sore from jumping on the trampoline with the kids, and then go into another day where I might just be trying to stay afloat emotionally or physically or psychologically. When the writers of the New Testament declare that the gospel of Jesus, when they say the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when they say that, they are telling us the two tracks can converge. The glory that the world is headed for, that we're headed for, and our disappointing lives, all that can converge, it can intersect. There is an unstoppable, glorious destiny for this world in Jesus Christ, and it's going to sweep up our frustrated and painful lives like a tidal wave. And one day, that tidal wave is going to turn the wilderness back into a garden city. I want you to keep this in mind today and next week as we begin to unpack a little bit what this word gospel means. Think about its substance and its character. Today, we're going to do that with attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. And in that passage that was read for us by Ryan, there are just four things I want to spotlight about the gospel. Number one. The gospel is meant to be received not only in word, but also in power. Let me read those verses again. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that God has chosen you. How? Because God's gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power by the Holy Spirit and conviction. As we take stock of this passage of Scripture, a good question to ask ourselves is this. Have we received the gospel only in word? What might that look like? Maybe like this. I read my Bible from time to time. I give money to the church and charity from time to time. I go to church on Sundays with my family. I try to sing loud when I can. I meet up with the guys every once in a while on Thursday nights. And then at the end of each day, I go home. I lay my head on my pillow, and here's how I know I'm okay. There's enough money in my bank account, and people like me. That's receiving the gospel in word only not in power and spirit and conviction. Here's something that's really important to know about this passage that we're reading. When St. Paul wrote this, he was writing to two different types of people, and both of those types of people were in the church. It wasn't one group outside the church and one group in the church. So he's, talk, he's, not, he's talking to people who hear the gospel in one sense, 
And then he's also talking to people who hear the gospel and grasp it in their hearts. And the church is filled with both types of people. Think about it like this. Does that make you hungry? Some of you know your grandma's cherry pie because you know the recipe. You've got it written down somewhere. So if I say, you know your grandma's cherry pie, you can say yes, and that's a truthful answer. But others of you, you know your grandma's cherry pie because you've tasted it. That's a different type of knowing. Of course, you need to know the recipe, but that's not enough. That's not a full knowing. The gospel and word and power. Or think about it like this. How would you explain your favorite spot at Polly's Island on the beach, the most beautiful spot for you? How would you explain that to a blind person, a blind woman? A stream of words, no matter how detailed, no matter how descriptive, would not be able to adequately do that. But if her eyes were open for just five seconds, that's all she would need. Eyes open, gospel and power. So has the gospel come in word only? If so, you're only drinking decaf coffee. I hate to tell you. It's not going to change you. You've got to be convicted. It's got to melt your heart. You've got to experience the power of the gospel. What does does that look like concretely? Let me say a few things here. It looks like anger being replaced by peace. It looks like stinginess being replaced by generosity. It looks like resentment being replaced by forgiveness. Callousness being replaced by kindness. Deceptiveness by truthfulness. Indifference being replaced by love. That's the gospel in power. This is a good thing to pray for as we start the new year. I'm praying for it in my life. Would you do that with me? Second thing, the gospel deflates our idols. This is the point of verse 9. Paul writes, For it was reported to us concerning you how you turn from, to God from idols, starting to serve the living and the true God. Now, what's an idol? Perhaps when we hear that word idol, we think of a little statuette that you might pay homage to, some of the hearth gods that they used in the ancient world or some of the uh, idol icons that are used in Hinduism today, for example. In some sense, that's right, those are idols, yet true idolatry runs deeper. It's much more nefarious, it's also much more subtle. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, explains this as well as anybody else I know. Let me share what he says about idolatry. He says, idolatry happens when we look to something else besides the living and true God for all the good we desire, for all the refuge that we seek. In this sense, whenever we put our trust and our belief foremostly in something besides God, we've got an idol in our life. Whenever we look to something besides God, ultimately for our security and our well-being, we've got an idol in our life, which means that idols aren't just little statues. Idols can be bank accounts. They can be relationships. They can be jobs, having or achieving a certain position. And here's another thing that's worth noting. Idols are often good things, but they are good things that are made into ultimate things. That's the problem. You make a good thing into an ultimate thing. An idol is anything other than the living and the true God that I serve. And when I say serve, I don't mean going to someone's house and vacuuming or sweeping up or doing the dishes for them. What I mean is serving something in the sense of making it your master, the master of your mind, the determiner of your worth, of your selfhood. We're talking about the employer that you clock in and out with in your heart. You see, we can vest our hopes, our sense of security and well-being, our identity and all kinds of stuff besides God. We do this all the time. I do it all the time. We have idols. We have other masters besides the Lord. And those other masters, they often disappoint us, don't they? They drive us mad. We serve them like slaves and they grind us down, even if we work for them perfectly. 
And the gospel comes into that situation. And God says, you know, I came to you while you were worshiping a multitude of other idols, other masters that could never really satisfy you, even if you work for them perfectly. And God says, I'm going to satisfy you perfectly, even if you work for me imperfectly. And that's through Jesus Christ, the one who came to serve, not to be served. No idol does that. Idols like to be served. You serve that bank account, striving and working to keep it full. You serve that codependent parent, trying to get their approval, trying to placate and satisfy them, but they're incapable of being pacified. In contrast, St. Paul in Romans 6 says the gospel comes into our life and it relaxes the vice-like grip that our hearts often have on the empty, draining masters of this world and it fixes our eyes on Jesus Christ the master who says I want you to come to me if you're burdened and if you're heavy laden and I'm going to give you rest can I get an amen number three this may be a little bit of a surprise for some of us the gospel is for believers not just unbelievers some of you might be thinking right now why is Roger talking about the gospel in a, inside the church. If you're in the church, it means you know the gospel. You're supposed to talk about the gospel when you go down to the corner by Frank's or wherever, or, you know, the bakery, and give out tracts to people who walk by. Here's the gospel, the four spiritual principles. Let me tell you what it is. But we in here, we know the gospel. So you don't need to, you don't need to talk about it in here. If you're thinking that way, I want you to hold your presumptuous horses. We're talking about the gospel and what it is because the gospel is for sinners and that means that the gospel is for believers and for unbelievers because we're all sinners the gospel comes to sinners as an engine not as a spark plug look again at verse 6 the Christians in Thessalonica received the word of God literally they took hold of it that's what that means and this is an important little grammar lesson here. If you're a grammar person, you're going to appreciate this. The verb that's used there denotes an action that was not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing action. So it means they didn't just receive it and then that was it. It means they kept receiving it. It was an ongoing process of reception over the course of their lives. And so the gospel's not a spark plug. It's not something that just ignites or starts the Christian life and then you turn it off. It's an engine. It's something that drives the Christian life forward. It moves it on. Let me come at it like this. You can conceive of the gospel as either a gateway or a pathway. In the gateway metaphor, the gospel is just the entrance into Christianity. It's the door you pass through to get in one time. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. In contrast, if you think of the gospel as a pathway... It means that the gospel sustains and motivates and advances you through the life of faith. Let me break this down some more. As a gateway, the gospel is just a ticket in. As a pathway, the gospel is the air that you breathe that keeps you alive and going. As a gateway, the gospel was at work. As a pathway, the gospel is at work. As a gateway, the gospel offers forgiveness from past sins and then sets you on a road of doing more and more for Jesus but as a pathway, the gospel offers forgiveness for past and present and future sins and then sets you on a road of enjoying more and more what Jesus has done for you. As a gateway, the gospel means that you gained, God gained your allegiance yesterday. As a pathway, the gospel means that God feeds your hungry heart today, right now. 
as a gateway, the gospel shows you the idea of forgiveness. As a pathway, the gospel draws you to the person of Jesus Christ. The gateway gospel is black and white. The pathway gospel is Jesus in color HD on the big screen. The gateway gospel says you were justified by Jesus, so now get back to life and behave so you don't get kicked out. The pathway gospel says you were justified in Christ so that you no longer ever again need to seek your justification, which is just to say your sense of worth and value and lovableness as a person. You no longer need to seek that ever again in anything else. Fill in the blank because it's in Jesus Christ. How about that? That's a sweet thought. And it's not just a thought, it's a reality according to God. Fourth and finally, this one's also a little bit counterintuitive. The gospel is not for good people and resisted by bad people. The gospel is for bad people and it's often resisted by good people. In other words, the gospel is for bad people like me and it's resisted by good people. This is the point of the little section of verses from chapter 2. Paul says, Uh, For you guys suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The Jews being the one who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. The Jews being those who displeased God. Now Paul is not being anti-Semitic here. Paul himself was a Jew as most of you probably know. What Paul is talking about is the fact that the Jewish establishment of Jesus' time was filled with guys who opposed Jesus and his gospel. And these Jewish people... They happened to be very religiously serious. They were morally meticulous. They were ethically scrupulous. They were really, really good people. They were uh, religiously impeccable, you might say. Good people. But it was they, these good people, who most stridently rejected Jesus and his gospel. Because people who are good, people who think they're healthy, people who think they've got it together, people who think they're managing pretty well on their own, they're ticking all the right boxes, people like that don't ever go to the doctor. They don't think they need help. Which is precisely why the gospel was good news for bad people and often resisted by good people. It comes to this, gang. The two tracks in our lives converge when we acknowledge that we are bad people in need of saving not good people who need a little bit of assistance. And I want to stress that point in this context because Polly's Island is filled with people who have been pretty successful by the world's standards, people who have done well in life, high achievers, people who have moved up. That's great. We celebrate that. But there's a risk that comes with that, risk of losing sight of the fact that uh, we don't need to be assisted. We need to be saved. That's part of the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's the happy news that Jesus Christ was crucified in Roger's place. It's good news that's to be received in word and power, good news that defeats the idols of my heart. It does this by turning our affections to Jesus. It's a gospel that's for sinners. It's a gospel for believers and unbelievers because we're all sinners. It's a gospel for anyone who knows they need profound help from God. And it's a gospel that doesn't give us an idea or a philosophy but a person, and that person is called Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ tells us that all shall be well. He gives us a promise that the little islands of joy that are in our lives, those little islands, we cherish them and we wish there were more of them. Those islands are not diminishing and decreasing and destined to be eventually swallowed up by the ocean of sadness and frustration and disappointment. To the contrary, Jesus says those islands of joy are by the power of God actually expanding 
and one day that ocean of sorrow and frustration and disappointment is going to be completely overtaken and all shall be well. That's one of the great promises of the gospel. In this gospel of Jesus, it continually defies our expectations, what we think we know about God and just how darn gracious and merciful he is. Which is why even if you've been a Christian for 50 years, like some of you in this room, you find yourself on your deathbed and you might just be thinking, you know, I'm just now starting to get it. Because it absolutely defies our intuitions and expectations. It challenges the inveterate earner in us. It disrupts and upends that deep-seated notion, that lie, that we've got to perform and produce. We've got to hold it together. We've got to keep it together by ourselves if we're going to be worth anything. And I know there are people in this room besides me, and I'm one of them, who struggle not to believe that. The gospel challenges that falsehood, and we know it. For a lot of us, it's, it's true in our lives. It functions as truth in our lives. And the gospel challenges that falsehood in all the moments of failure and disappointment that we experience. It challenges it in the moment when you've just lied again to your parents. It challenges it in the moment when you've just vomited again after another binge. It challenges it in a moment when you've just clicked into something that you vowed you would never click into again. Or when you've had an opportunity to do something caring and generous for somebody and you didn't. It's in all those moments and many, many more that the gospel declares that we remain freely welcomed in the arms of God. We're not filthy no matter how we feel, no matter what our conscience tells us. We are clean, accepted, approved, and loved in God through Jesus Christ, and that is liberating. That is the path to wholeness and to true freedom. That is Jesus' gospel. I speak to you in the name of the three men I admire the most, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.